Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast, our first edition of 2018. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com National Editor Matt Myers. Matt, hello. Have you enjoyed your time off? Are you ready to get back to thinking about baseball? Uh, I never stopped thinking about baseball. Yes. Mike. <laughs> the hot stove has uh, been about as warm as the actual weather here in New York. Uh, but we did have one interesting signing to talk about. We can talk about Wade Davis, Colorado Rocky, which is not a sentence I think I expected to say. Um, and then we're also going to look ahead to the year to come. We've got some breakout pitchers we want to talk about, some breakout hitters, obviously using StatCast data and all of that. And then I think we will also talk a little bit about what starters necessarily shouldn't go deep into games, because that's obviously been a big topic over the last few years. The first thing we have is Wade Davis, signed with the Rockies. Three years, $52 million, vesting option that could make it four years, $66 million. The Rockies have really spent a lot of money on their bullpen so far. They've got Wade Davis. They brought back Jake McGee. They have Brian Shaw. Uh, this is a it's a good bullpen, right? And my question to you is, is it a better bullpen? Because it was a good bullpen last year, too. And um, I, like, I really like the names, but I also I don't know how there was a lot of room for improvement, right? It's I, I mean, the fact that Davis signed with the Rockies doesn't necessarily surprise me because they seemed intent on signing a capital C closer. Um, so there was it, during the winter meetings, it looked like they were about to lock, uh, re-sign Greg Holland. And then now they got Davis instead. So that, that, that part doesn't shock me, but I agree with you in a, in a broader sense that like, I'm not sure it's that much better. You know, I like Brian Shaw, but at the same time, on the one hand, he's thrown, you know, he's had 70 appearances in like four straight years. On the other hand, he's had 70 appearances. Like durability is, a good thing until you're not durable like anymore. I have numbers. So last year, you know, I guess we're going to say 2017 is last year now. The Rockies bullpen was the sixth best in baseball, uh, according to our stat, expected weighted on base. Uh, that measure strikeouts and walks and also quality of contact. And it's it's really great to use expected weighted on base in Colorado because the actual weighted on base tends to be a little skewed. Uh, they had a 293 expected weighted on base. That was the sixth best in baseball. So what we did is we just took uh, 2017 numbers, but we just changed the guys on their new team. So we looked at the pitchers who are Rockies now. So Shaw, Davis, we took out Holland, we took out Pat Nishik. And the collection of guys that the Rockies have now, their expected weighted on base in 2017 was 288 which is seventh best basically really good but identical so it, it, it's interesting to me that they will still have a very good bullpen um, i'm just not sure it's, it's better because it was already pretty good and when you look at wade davis his, his trends are interesting because it's both fair and i think misleading to say that he's on a downward trend because he started from such a high place that even like stepping back a little bit as he's done still makes him very good right i mean two years ago 2015 he had a 0.94 era of course he wasn't going to maintain that. It's unfair to expect that he would. Uh, but you look at his expected weighted on base. Two years ago, it was 248, which is like Kenley Jansen level. In 2016, it was 260, which is very, very good. 
Last year, 289. It's still very much above average, uh, but it's not it's not elite anymore. It's tied for 95th of the 254 relievers who faced 100 guys. So he's still really good. I just don't think of him as like the Jansen Kimbrell type that I used to. And I, I can say I'm doing my top 10 lists by position for MLB Network right now. He didn't make my top 10. Still very good. I just don't know that I think of him as elite. Yeah, for the most part, you see teams not really paying for the capital C closers like maybe they once did. But this is definitely an example of a team doing that. And as far as I'm concerned, it's it's a an odd allocation of resources for the Rockies. They've you know this winter they've signed Davis, Shaw, and McGee to a combined. They're going to make thirty point five million dollars in 2018, and the Rockies still have some big issues. They, their their offense is. Well, it depends on who you ask, right? <laughs> Their offense is in trouble. Their offense is not is not very good. It was one of the worst in baseball last year when you adjust for park. Um, raw numbers, they still, they still probably literally can runs. And the, no, this is like my favorite argument to get into with people because they'll say, what? They had a, they had the best batting average and they led the league in runs. They had a great offense. It's like, well, course Field is a thing that exists. Um, and, and you're right. When I look at the lineup, obviously, Arenado is a star. Charlie Blackman is a star. Now, I think he also had the best year of his career last year. I don't know that I see him repeating that. I mean, he had an MVP caliber year last year. I still think he'd be very good. Like, I have confidence in Blackman. I have confidence in Nolan Arenado. Uh, you know, DJ LeMay, he's fine. He's, you know, a, a good fielder. He's a fine hitter. I just don't know what else you are relying on. Like, Chris Iannetta, he's fine. They don't have a first baseman. I think that's the problem. And there are so many good first basemen out there. That's, that's what they need. Well, they're, they're putting a lot of faith. They're really putting a lot of faith in... Basically, Ryan McMahon, who they have penciled in in first place, who had a big year last year at double and triple A, but and he's 23 years old, but it's still he's still unproven. And they're also putting a lot of faith in David Dahl coming back and being healthy and being productive. And David Dahl is a very exciting player, uh, but health is a skill, and he's really had trouble staying on the field first grade. You know, he had a, he had to have his spleen removed in the minors, he, which is a fluke thing. But then even it was, last it, it year, was in a collision. So yeah. in, in 2014, he. he ripped his hamstring. 2015, he got into a collision, had his spleen removed. And then last year, he had a stress fracture in his ribs swinging a bat. And that basically like turned into a back issue. He missed the entire year. He hasn't he hasn't swung a bat yet. He's not cleared to swing a bat yet. But I look when I look at the ways the Rockies can improve themselves for 2018, there, there are fixes on the free agent market that really could improve their lineup. Like we've talked about a little bit, putting Lorenzo Cain in center, shifting Blackman to a corner, improves their lineup and improves their defense. Um, Carlos Santana, they could really use a first baseman, would have been a great fit for the Rockies. And their lineup is still going to be in question. Yes, they've spent a lot on the bullpen, but it's unclear they've actually improved the bullpen. And they still had some pieces like carried over, as well as some young arms who might be better fits in the bullpen that could have filled some of these roles. Uh, as you know, I love the idea of Lorenzo Cain there. They're not going to spend that money now that they've done another bullpen. Um, if I was them, trade a bunch of the young pitching for Christian Yelich and then sign Lucas Duda to play first base. Done. That's a good team. Well, I mean, they could still get someone like Duda, but it doesn't seem like they will, but I think Duda would be a great fit there. Oh, I agree. Totally. So, I mean, I just love that we're talking about the Rockies. You know, I'm always fascinated with the Rockies. They're still a good team. They're going to be interesting. I just I feel like there's more to be done. They can't stop here. And it's Because it's also a weird team because when, you, when, when all's said and done, the strength of the team is probably the starting pitching. But when you look at the the raw numbers, they don't look that impressive because of, Cause of course field. field. Um, but, you know, you're... Any a Rockies contender for next year is predicated on basically Jonathan Gray being an ace, which he very well could be, but his numbers, his broad numbers may not look like it. Before we move on from the Rockies, I just want to quickly note they have two relievers that nobody pays attention to who I think are very good, Chris Rusin and Scott Oberg. I know Scott Oberg's numbers aren't very good. He throws like 96 with movement on the outside corner with a good breaking ball. I just feel like he's one of those guys who could take a big step forward next year. Exactly. And that's, I mean, that's they relievers can kind of be create, like we've seen 
every team, not every team, a lot of teams have shown an ability to sort of like create effective relievers off the scrap heap without having to pay a pre- big premium for them. Right now, the the Rockies are trying to like buy a super bullpen, and like, well, I don't doubt their bullpen will be effective. I'm not sure they're actually moving the needle on making their team that much better. Yep, they might still be the third best team in that division, and that's partially because the Dodgers are so far ahead of everybody. We do have some breakout starting pitchers I want to get to, but before we do that, a quick moment to tell you about our friends at the Cut Forecast. The Cut Forecast is the podcast from the staff of MLB.com's Cut Four section, which focuses on the lighter side of baseball. If you made it this far in our podcast, you'd really enjoy theirs. It'll make you laugh, and you might even learn something about baseball dogs or ballpark food. A recent episode broke down A-Rod's commencement speech at the University of Miami and wondered whether Chase Utley can actually resurrect the dab. If that sounds like something you're into, search Cut Forecast, C-U-T number four, C-A-S-T in Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts, and click subscribe. Now on with our show... We looked at breakout starting pitchers, and I feel like we just need to talk for a second. What is a breakout? This is the thing we kind of run into every year. Like Whether a guy has already broken out, I think, depends entirely on how closely you're following this kind of stuff. Like, I always hear from like you know daily fantasy players, like, oh, this guy broke out months ago. And it's like, most people don't think he's broken out yet. So I think a lot of this comes from your perception. I think to, 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 be, and to be clear about one thing, when we say we, we, we talked about breakout pitchers, Mike wrote a piece from movie.com where he broke down some breakout pitchers who we're going to go through here. To me, you have to, to really be a true breakout pitcher, you have to have done it for a full season. We regularly see pitchers sort of like find a spot in the rotation in the second half and put up some good numbers, but I'm not, I don't count that as a breakout until they've done it over a full season. Right, and that was the question last year because I had James Paxton on my breakout list because he had a really good second half of 2016, but he hadn't done it yet, and then he went health. It was very good in 2017. Uh, Robbie Ray, I think, because he was like 8-15 and 15 the year before. He was striking out everybody. We're like, this is a guy who's going to be good. So uh, we have listed five breakout starting pitchers. One of them will get out of the way very quickly because we've talked about him a ton before. Tyler Chatwood. You know I'm all on board the Tyler Chatwood train. Uh, he's finally gotten out of Colorado. He's going to be with the Cubs. A brief recap of the Tyler Chatwood experience. His fastball velocity was up two miles an hour last year elite curveball spin elite ground ball rate and i really i think he's like the next charlie morton not going to be a cy young contender probably but anyway he is a guy that i would bet on being a breakout contender uh i think number one on this list is a really interesting name luis castillo of the reds and he's fascinating he's 24 years old he's technically on his fourth organization he's actually traded by the marlins twice he came up with the giants was traded for casey mcgee the Marlins tried to trade him to San Diego, which worked for like two days until that deal had to get undone because of other guys' injuries. And then he was traded to the Reds for Dan Straley. Last year, Luis Castillo only pitched 89 innings. So again, we're not talking about a full season here. If you care about wins and losses, three and seven, not so good. But a 312 ERA is really good. And when you look at the StatCast metrics, it's actually really interesting. He was first tied with Luis Severino in fastball velocity, 97.5 miles an hour. He was sixth in ground ball rate, almost 60%. And this is my favorite thing, fifth an expected weighted on base amongst starting pitchers. And let me tell you the top five names here. Scherzer, Sale, Kluber, Kershaw, Luis Castillo. Granted, those guys pitched more than 89 in the third innings. I will cop to that. But you cannot fake that kind of number. I mean, that is incredibly impressive. That combines quality of contact and amount of contact. This guy throws hard. He keeps it on the ground. And I'm, I'm really excited about him for this upcoming year. Yeah, what I love about Luis Castillo is that in my head, when I think of Luis Castillo, yes. I think of like <laughs> Me the slap-hitting second baseman <laughs> from the Marlins from 15 years ago. And this Luis Castillo is very different, the big right-hander who throws like 98 miles an hour. So uh, it's sort of a, it's a funny uh, visual in my mind. It's it's a little bit different. So anyway, he, he was kind of my Paxton for this year, a guy who I sort of think already broke out, but obviously needs to prove he can do it over a full season. Um, one of my favorite names on this list, 
Denelson LeMay, and uh, you know, this is our inevitable Padres talk for the day. Denelson LeMay was, if you didn't pay attention last year, absolutely elite against right-handed pitchers. Uh, excuse me, right-handed batters. Uh, if you look at the lowest weighted on base against right-handed batters, Scherzer was number one. That makes sense. Brad Peacock, Corey Kluber, and then LeMay. LeMay against righties, a 154 batting average, a 241 on base, and a 296 slugging. There were 235 starting pitchers who induced at least 100 swings from righties, and his 35% swing and miss rate was fifth best. That's really, really good. Now you're wondering, okay, so why didn't he already break out? Uh, he got crushed by left-handed. 258, a 365 on base, and a 502 slugging, and this is entirely because he's only got two pitches. He's got a 95-mile-an-hour fastball. He's got a very good slider. And he has nothing else. He's working on a change-up. He's working on, you know... That profile screams reliever to me. Well, we're going to get to that. <laughs> he is on another list today. But my point is that if he he can just get a barely usable third pitch to keep lefties honest, you could see this guy breaking out. And I'm thinking more of like breaking out to a you know league average starter, not to a top five guy. But I really like the profile here. Yeah, a, 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 Padre, a promising Padre starter who needs a third pitch. Where have I heard that before? <laughs> uh, two more guys on this list. And these, these last two guys, I think, are very, very different. One guy is uh, someone we've been talking about for a while, Garrett Richards. He was, I think, one of the first guys we started talking about when we turned StatCast on a couple years ago. Well, I mean, he's kind of, I mean, he's had, I mean, he's, hasn't he gotten Cy Young votes? Well, he's had, a, he's had a really good season, but so in 2014, right, he had a, a 261 ERA, but only in 168 innings because he only got to August before he blew out his knee. So he had a, that really good partial year. The next year he came back, he missed a little bit of time, and he was good, but he wasn't great. 365, but he you know threw 207 innings. And then the last two years, he's only made 12 starts because he's had elbow issues. So yes, he's already had a lot more success than some of these other guys, but he has not had that end-to-end like really good season. Like you, you could see him being an ace, like an actual Cy Young winner, if he can stay healthy. I know, huge if. Um, but what I like about him is even though he didn't pitch a lot the last two years, the velocity's still there. Last year, he had 95.7 miles an hour on his fastball. It's tied for eighth with Strasburg. Number one in curveball spin among starters over the last two years. Number three in fastball spin among starters over the last two years. I know his elbows held together with silly putty. So if he can stay healthy, I'm still on board. Don't, I mean, don't get me wrong. When you know he was when we first started looking at Statcast data three years ago, he was like the the pitcher that first jumped out. It was like, oh, this guy's suddenly a lot more interesting than right. I thought uh, because of his um, his elite spin on, on a couple on a couple of offerings. So I certainly want to see him put it together for a full season. And you know, the Angels are obviously. In many ways, they're the most interesting team in the offseason thus far because they already added Otani, of course. Then they signed Cozart. They re-signed Justin Upton, and they acquired Kinsler. So they're the team that people – they've probably done more this this offseason to sort of change the, sh- the shape of their roster than anyone. You can you can dream on a Richards Otani 1-2 at the top of the rotation, and that's that's exciting. Uh, the third, uh, the suit, the final guy is a brand new name. I'm not sure we've ever talked we, about. We him. have, we've, we've talked because I think that I talked about him at the end of the year of like, at the end of the season we talked about like guys who sort of jumped out to us and this guy because he's shockingly oh, that's right. throws harder than. That's not why. It's because you said he looked like Bartolo Colon and that's why. <laughs> well, also because he throws a hundred. He throws a hundred. Luis Gohara of the Braves, uh, 21 years old, doesn't turn 22 until the end of July. He, a year ago, was an A-ball pitcher for the Mariners, and he was traded in the Malik Smith deal. And he pitched at four levels for the Braves in 2017, made it to the bigs at the end of the year, made five starts, 31 strikeouts, and 29 in the third innings. Pretty good. Third hardest fastball velocity, 96.4. As you said, he touched 100 miles an hour from the left side, which is actually somewhat rare. Uh, He had a top 25 expected weighted on base, 284, which is very similar to Carlos Martinez, 
but a 491 ERA. Part of that, you know, we're only talking five games, not a huge sample here. He had the third largest gap in expected batting average, which was 218, and actual batting average, which was 283. Is that bad luck? Is that lousy defense? Is it just things happen over five games? Who knows? But I will bet on the guy with an arm like that. I mean, he he, you jump four levels to the big leagues in one season, you're doing something right. Yeah, he's one of the players I'm most excited to uh, to watch in 2018 because I, I I'll admit I never saw him, and then I like I see the data about him. I'm like, oh, this guy's this guy's really interesting. Yeah, so those are five guys um, that you should bet on, and I'm certainly not promising that all five guys will do, will do great, but I guarantee you at least one of them is going to have a fantastic <laughs> season. Hopefully, Luis Castillo. One for five, so you're at the Mendoza line. Uh, yes. Uh, we also looked at uh, at breakout bats. Our friend David Adler uh, went through a couple of these, uh, and there's a few of these that, that stand out. We, you know, he had David Jaw. We talked about him a little bit already. Uh, we've talked about Byron Buxton and Jan Diaz on the show many times, but there's a couple of names here that really stand out, and, and the first one on his list would also have been the first one on my list, which is Greg Bird, first baseman for the Yankees. And I know that Greg Bird has had uh, an injury history himself. Didn't play at all in 2016, uh, had another injury issue last year in 2017, only hit one for the season and that I think is why a lot of people initially thought that the Yankees would be all on Eric Hosmer and there's been no rumors about the Yankees and Eric Hosmer not even one and I actually say I think Greg Bird's gonna have a better season in 2018 than Eric Hosmer I'm, I'm still on board because when he came up in 2015 he was really good he slugged 529 he had a weighted runs created plus of 137 or 100 as league average last year his numbers were terrible but he was clearly playing through pain for the first half of the season. Uh, before he went on the DL, his expected weighted on base was 311. When he came back from the DL, it was 357. He slugged 551 in September with six homers, hit three more home runs in the playoffs. He's still only like 25 years old. He gets lost, I think, in all the Stanton and Judge and, and Sanchez. Obviously, the Yankees have a lot of good young players, you know, Severino on the pitching side. I'm still all in on the Greg Bird train. I think he is not going to just be a complimentary piece. I think he will be one of the main pieces. Oh, yeah. I think it wasn't that... It was in that, that- the uh, playoff series against the uh, Indians when he homered off Andrew Miller. Yes. When everyone was like, oh, yeah, this guy. Right. Greg Bird. Oh, yeah. Left-handed <laughs> hitters homering off Andrew Miller. That's hard to do. That doesn't really happen. And he's going to be like the, what, the, the fourth guy in that lineup? Fifth guy? Obviously, Judge, Stanton, Gary Sanchez. I don't know. Do we count Didi Gregorius in there somewhere, too? He was great. Yeah. I've certainly, certainly, I mean, in terms of raw numbers, I expect Bird to out hit Gregorius. Obviously, yeah. relative to their position. You know, maybe Gregorius will be, will be better. But, yeah. So, he... There's not going to be a lot of focus on Greg Bird, so I, you know, it'll be a good situation for him because coming into last year, if you recall, not that I put any credence in the spring stats, but in spring training he hit like nine home runs, and everyone was like, "Oh, Greg Bird's back! He's going to be, he's going to be the breakout season." And then he got hurt again. Was it his ankle again? I yeah, think it was, yeah, and he tried to play through it, and it didn't go well. And then the Yankees had this uh, this long running. Uh, it was it 2016 when he homered nine times? I think it might have been that. Uh, anyway, it's hard to keep straight. Yeah. But he tried to play through pain, and then the Yankees had like 75 guys trying to play first base, like Man Choi and Chris Carter, and none of them worked out. Uh, and now I think he, if he's healthy, and it's always the huge if, I really think he's going to have a big year. Obviously, a lefty bat in Yankee Stadium is a pretty nice fit. What, another name on this list is Steven Piscotti, uh, recently traded from the Cardinals to the A's. And he was a guy who uh, had kind of gained some helium over a few years. I think they had signed him to an extension. And then in 2017, it just wasn't that great. I mean, his quality of contact was a little better than his results. His weighted on base was 319, which is a little bit below average. But his expected was 337, so maybe he got a little bit unfortunate there. There's obviously skill there, right? Like the Cardinals had seen something in uh, in the years past, and it, it just didn't go well. And it feels like, and I've been saying for a while, I think the A's are a super interesting team. He's a perfect fit in, in Oakland. I, I think he could have a big year. And he, exactly, and you know, obviously, there's 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 a whole off field issue with Piscotti. Um, his mother was diagnosed with ALS, and that's part of the reason why the Cardinals want traded him to Oakland. It's where he's from. He grew up an A's fan. It's it's a nice it's a nice story, and I think that Piscotti has shown. 
um, elite hitting ability in 2015, his expected weight, expected weight on base was 360. Um, so he was a big prospect, first round pick. There's there's all the, the the trappings there of a player, particularly now that he's in a situation where maybe he's a little more comfortable. Obviously, that's like broad speculation. But as it is, it was he clearly was like performing below his ability in 2017. And the A's are kind of a sneaky team, as we've talked about a little bit before. And like he's exactly the kind of player who could sort of like make them punch above their weight, so to speak, just because like I think he's better than he showed in 2017. And the A's, I feel like, have a few players like that. Well, you got Piscotti, Matt Olson, Matt Chapman, Chris with a K. Uh, Davis, Jed Lowry, and suddenly that's interesting. I mean, like Chad Pinder is someone who I found kind of interesting. It, it really comes down to their rotation. They have all these young guys with talent, haven't really been able to put it together yet. They're not as good as the Astros. I mean, no one's saying that. But I do think they're interesting. And one thing I really liked about Piscotti last year, even in a bad year for him, he drew one more walk in 50, 107 games than he did in 153 games the year before. I like improved plate discipline. That's usually a sign of a young hitter starting to figure something out. Yeah, it's, uh, it would, I was, and he's also a guy that people are rooting for now that people have become aware of his personal situation. And I, I, I look forward to him having a really good year in 2018. One more guy in the breakout hitter list, and this is not from David's piece. This is my choice, and I, I'm sure I've talked about him a bunch of times before. Nick Castellanos. Uh, he had 51 barrels in 2017, which is tied for 10th most. A barrel is, of course, our definition of the perfect combination of launch, angle, and exit velocity. Uh, minimum outcome of 500 batting average and 1,500 slugging percentage. It's like the best thing you can do. He had the 10th most in baseball, and that's really good. Um, he actually had a 366 expected weighted on base. That was 38th best. It was tied with Tommy Pham. You know we love Tommy Pham. He's actually ahead of Charlie Blackman, who got a little bit of a boost from Coors Field. And what I really liked about Castellanos, is he's someone we've been talking about for like two years, is hits the ball really hard, but the production hasn't been there, right? And, you know, eventually the production has to come or none of the rest of it matters. In the second half last year, he dropped his strikeout percentage from 25% in the first half to 17% in the second half. 329 on base and a 553 slugging. He crushed the ball last year in the second half. Uh, he's now a right fielder because third base didn't work out so well. I really think that he could be a guy. I know the Tigers aren't going to be probably contenders this year, but he's one of the guys to watch there because I think he could be someone really interesting. And maybe someone, you know, if he has a good first half, gets traded to a contender in the, down the stretch and plays a big role. Uh, he's a guy that I think would have a lot of trade value. Like if I were a GM right now looking for value, I'd be, he's the kind of guy, I mean, for all I know, the Tigers might value him you know, incredibly, and don't want to don't want to give him up. But he's a guy I'd be trying to target to to wrestle away because uh, I think that he's a perfect breakout candidate. He it was reported recently that they had approached him about an extension and he turned it down. So I guess that's where he's at. But here's one thing I don't understand. I didn't understand it at the time. He passed through waivers last summer at the trade deadline. He he went through unclaimed. Any team could have put in a claim for him. Obviously, it doesn't make any money for for essentially nothing, and no one did. And part of me thinks, well, okay, there's a lot of smart people in the other 29 front offices. Maybe they know something I don't. But also. This guy hits the ball hard. Somebody could have used him. You're telling me some other like you know contender or non-contender couldn't have found a place at DH in the or in the outfield for him? That that shocked me. I feel like teams are going to regret that. I guess, but I mean, obviously the Tigers could have pulled him back. But I guess there's no Herman trying. What's what's the risk? Um, our final topic today is starting pitchers and really how we're defining starting pitchers. I think we've been talking for years, you know, on this show and and in many other places that. Starters just aren't going deep into games anymore. You know, there's more relievers. Uh, we talk about the third time through the order penalty endlessly. And I think we really saw that come to a tipping point last year because the Dodgers and the Astros were using this strategy a lot. They were not letting their non-elite starters go into the game very deeply. And those teams went to the World Series. They were very successful. Uh, we saw in Game 7 of the World Series, we saw that A.J. Hinch, the manager of the Astros, did something we'd never really seen in the World Series before. He pulled Lance McCullers with a shutout before the third inning was over that had never 
never happened before in the World Series with the exception of injuries or, or a gimmick from like 100 years ago. So that's that's interesting to me. That that really feels like when you see that kind of success happening with this sort of strategy, we're just going to see more and more about it. We've seen the Mets basically say, we're going to do this now. We've seen the Rays say, we're going to do this now. Because the numbers are, are unmistakable. Uh, you look at times to the order last year for a starting pitcher. 314 weighted on base the first time. 332 the second time. 340 the third time. Relievers first time 309. Now it's not a one size fits all thing. No one wants to pull Max Scherzer after the fourth inning, but I feel like there's a lot of these guys who maybe don't have great surface numbers because they were pushed a little farther than they maybe were capable of. Right? I'll give you an example. Taiwan Walker had a pretty good year last year, 3.49 ERA. If he'd only ever pitched through five innings, he'd have a 3.12 ERA. You'd think about him a little differently. Whenever he pitched after the fifth inning, he had a 6.16 ERA. Now. I know none of these are like huge samples, and this is not the same for every single pitcher. And then obviously you have to make up for the inning somewhere with more guys who can throw more innings. But it seems clear to me this is the future. It's not starters and relievers. It's just it's just pitchers. Well, I think the big issue for a long time was pitcher. You know, pitchers still valued wins partially because wins got you paid. Um, and as we've seen a change in the way free agent pitchers are approached, if pitchers are confident that they're going to get paid regardless of how many wins they you know they accrue, it's going to change. They're going to be feel more comfortable being used in this manner. They won't. I think managers will feel less pressure to let guys try and power through for a win, particularly like the second tier guys. You know, the Kershaws, the Kluber's. Okay, you, you let them ride a little bit, but the second tier pitchers, if they're sort of signed or brought in or promoted, knowing, hey, your role is, you know, get us fifteen outs. That changes when you know traditionally it was get us twenty two outs. Right, and I don't think it's necessarily taking these guys that we're about to name and moving them from the rotation of the bullpen. It could be, but I, I think it could also be you're still a starter, but we're only expecting you to go three and two-thirds, and then we'll get you out of there. Okay. When I looked at our list, so let me tell you a little bit how I made this list. I looked at uh, all the pitchers who had at least 50 plate appearances as a starter against each of the first, second, and third times through the order. And I also set a minimum of a uh, 320 weighted on base the first time, because if you were terrible the first time, none of the rest of it matters. And what I found was interesting, two of the names that popped up very early on this list, Charlie Morton and Brad Peacock. Which is That's exactly what happened in Houston. They let those guys start, but they didn't really let them go all that deep. Uh, they were very successful, and then they got them out before they got into trouble. And then they brought in you know, Colin McHugh or Mike Fires or whoever. Uh, and I think that was a huge part of why the Astros are successful. Obviously, you're not going to do that with Verlander Keuchel. But with these non-elite guys, I think it works. So I've come up with a list of a couple of guys who were starters last year and I think would be very well-suited for this kind of work. One of the names, again, is Denelson LeMay, who we just talked about, because he's got two pitches for all the reasons we just explained, as you said, future reliever, or maybe just a future two times to the lineup start. We, we, we need to come up with a name for this, this role. You yeah, know? I know, we do. I don't have a good answer for that right now, but we'll get to that. Um, so the first name on my list was Brent Suter of the Brewers, and he was interesting because he does not throw very hard at all. 86-mile-an-hour 80, nope. fastball, that was the fourth lowest of more than 300 pitchers who threw 250. Of the three lower, one was a knuckleballer or a dicky, but one was Kyle Hendricks, and Kyle Hendricks is a very good pitcher. So I guess the point there is you can still succeed if you don't throw hard. It's not simple. You must throw hard. But still, I mean, 86 miles an hour, that's very, very difficult profile. And when you look at him, a 240 weighted on base the first time through. I mean, that's that's elite. That's extremely good. And a 484 the third time and beyond. Uh, he allowed more home runs the third time through, three home runs at 59 plate appearances, than in 235 hitters the first time through. I look at him and I see a guy who succeeds very much on deception. He's got a little funky windup. He doesn't throw that hard. And it could be very 
easy to see that maybe the more times a guy sees a pitcher like that, they can time it up, they can square it up a little easier. I look at him as a guy, you know, go out there once through the lineup, twice through the lineup. I'm not asking you to go seven, eight innings. Yeah. You're just not. Yeah. Um, another name that, that popped up here, uh, who we've talked about a lot on this list. I, I feel I mean, bad. On, this, on, on the show. I is, feel bad about this one already. Lucas Giolito. So Lucas Giolito, I remember us saying at the time of the trade that he was traded from the Nationals to the White Sox. And uh, a lot of people thought that was a total steal for the White Sox because they also got Dane Dunning and Ronaldo Lopez for Adam Eaton. And I didn't, wasn't quite sold on Giolito. And I remember we had a conversation where it's like, you know, if he if he doesn't work out, we'll look really good, but I don't want to actually root for a guy not to succeed. So last year he had an interesting year, seven starts for the White Sox, and the surface level was good, 238 ERA, fantastic. A 494 FIP of fielding independent pitching, which is just based on strikeouts, walks, and home runs, because he got gave up a lot of homers, and he did not strike a lot of guys out. 34 strikeouts in 45 innings. And I think a part of that, and we talked about this from day one, is his, his fastball, and this is what he got drafted on, right? He had 100-mile-an-hour fastball at high school. 92.4 miles an hour, basically the league average for a starter. And his spin rate was average to slightly below average. His spin rate was just over 2,100 RPM. Starting pitching average is about 2,250. That doesn't mean it's bad necessarily. It just means it's straight or maybe it sinks a little bit. And the fastball got teed off on. 10 of his 11 homers came against the fastball. 539 slugging against the fastball. He's actually pretty good the first time through. Uh, but I don't think that fastball is the carrying pitch that people thought it would be. And the curveball is only okay. I have a hard time seeing him turning over the lineup a couple of times. I thought he was a future reliever from day one. And I think this kind of backs that up a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it, it, at least it, it sort of shows maybe some promise of a future role because I think that though he has the I mean he's always going to be fighting against that that workhorse um, profile he had. You know, when he was coming out of high school, it was like oh, some thought he might be the first high school right hander ever go number one. You know, he's like six foot five and he's big. He has the you know like he looks like you know your your prototypical workhorse pitcher, but the velo's just never been there. In, in pro ball, and I think that we probably need to temper our expectations because for those reasons, as we've talked about before. Even in the minors, he was good, but he was never a dominant, you know, and, and it's been a couple of years now since he's had Tommy John surgery, so I, I don't think you can point to that necessarily. Um, still a talented guy. Like, I still think he's a major league pitcher. It just, is he the ace that we expected? I'll take the under on that. Uh, this is a name, the next one I'm, I think is kind of fun, Nathan Carnes. Uh, he's not someone that comes up a lot. Uh, he's almost like the David Dahl of, of pitchers. He's always hurt. Uh, last year, uh, season ended in July. He had thoracic outlet uh, syndrome surgery. In parts of five seasons with three teams, he's reached 100 innings just once. So he's not actually a guy who's been able to stay healthy. And he's older than you think. He's already 30 years old. Over the last two years, he's got a 424 ERA. So when I look at him, I don't see a guy who's capable of 32 starts, 200 innings. However, as a starting pitcher, and I think this was over the last three seasons I looked at this, the first two times through the order, 25.1% strike, strikeout rate. That's good. That's above average. 291 weighted on base against. That's good. That's above average. Once you get past that, strikeout rate drops from 25% to 20%. The weighted on base goes from 291 to 378. That is uh, problematic, and, I would say. And I feel like he's, I mean, he's sort of lived in this world before. I think was it with, when he was with the Rays, when he had his one, like, good season. This was basically kind of like when the Rays were kind of at the forefront of pulling pitchers quickly. That was sort of his his M.O., where he was, you know, he was pitching five innings, like, max. It, it really comes down to what do you want to ask him to do? I mean, do you want to focus on the fact that he's not going to go deep? Or if he goes six innings, maybe he gives up four runs? Or do you want to say, if you can go through four innings and allow one run, that makes your stat line look better, and it helps our team out. I, I think that's a really interesting way to look at it. And then the final name on the list, and I think this is one that uh, – well, two more names on the list, I guess. But uh, the most interesting name here, I think, is Lance McCullers. Right? 
part of the reason here is he's an Astro, and that seems to be a thing they'll do. Uh, and, you know, if there's a type here, it's that he's a two-pitch pitcher who can't stay healthy. Uh, I think that's maybe what we've identified as the type outside of Suter. 90% of his pitches are four-seamers or curves. He's had a lot of health issues in 2016. He had a shoulder issue. Last year, he missed time uh, with a back issue. And it's it's the same thing. First time through, very good. 282 weighted on base. A little worse the second time, 322. And the third time and beyond, 347. I mean, we've seen this. It's it, This happens to all these guys, especially guys who don't have a ton of pitches and who don't have a great history of staying healthy. I mean, this could be a, a way to say, hey, you may stay a little healthier if you're not pitching. As and much. we certainly know the Astros are willing to kind of use this, use this, use this model. And you might remember uh, he threw four shutout innings to finish off the Yankees in ALCS Game Seven. That's a fantastic example. That's exactly how this should work. Uh, the final name here is Robert Kesselman of the Mets. This could really be Seth Lugo or Zach Wheeler. I mean, the Mets have a ton of guys like this outside of Degrom and Syndergaard, and I think that's exactly why Mickey Callaway and Sandy Alderson are thinking about this now. Yeah, Alderson has been on. As, I mean, he was on record as basically saying we shouldn't be pitching pitching guys the third time through the order if they can't handle it. And the Mets, in many ways, are perfectly positioned to do this. They've got their two sort of aces in. Syndergaard and DeGrom, and assuming Syndergaard is healthy, which he seemed to be at the end of the year. There's no reason to think he's not go- – at this point, there's, there's not really reason to think he's not – And it wasn't an elbow thing yeah, or anything like a, that. It was a muscle. It was yeah. like a, a Latin muscle. But between, as you said, Gaselman, Harvey, Wheeler, Matt, Montero, Montero, Montero also had really good yeah. batted ball uh, – they, they've got – this is the – think about the Astros, right? They had their two aces at the end of the year, Verlander and Keuchel. And then they had five or six guys who they could rely on for three or four innings. This is exactly what the Mets have. And the Mets have improved their bullpen a little bit too. I really like Anthony Swarzak down there. Uh, they brought back Blevins. You know, they still have uh, Familia. I mean, this this could be, if used properly, an interesting Mets uh, rotation. What's really going to be, the, to me, the next level of this, this strategy is when teams figure out a way to use it while also – figuring out a way to carry a larger bench. Because I think that one of the things that, like, you know, what's happened in baseball with groupthink is every team is sort of starting to think, has, thinks the same way. And, you know, the real lesson, the quote-unquote real lesson of Moneyball is not OBP is king, it's zigging when everyone else is zagging. And I think that, you know, the Dodgers did this a little bit last year where they really used the 10-day DL to their advantage, where they are really using using pitchers, cycling them in and, in and off the roster. But they still kept, you know, a twelve or you know twelve man pitching staff, you know, um, or thirteen. I don't even know what the number. But like they never, they were never in a situation where they had extra bench guys and extra pinch hitters. So to me, the the, the real advantage that can be gained is if you can sort of like master the system while using the ten day DL. Is if you can get extra guys on the bench for a better defense, speed, pinch hitters. That's when you could really get a competitive advantage by using using the strategy, in my opinion. I think also a way to do that is, is some of the smart teams are really trying to find a two-way player. You know, we talk about Otane, but uh, you know the Dodgers tried it with Eibner last year. I think the Rangers just signed Anthony Ghost, who's kind of an outfielder slash pitcher. Because if you can have a guy uh, half in your bullpen to soak up the least important innings and then able to you know play some outfield or be a pinch runner, that's that is a way you expand it. Because the huge trend in baseball the last year is, ha- has been flexibility. You know, from Benzo Brist on to everybody else, and I think that's the next wave of this yeah and i think you know all the talk about otani being an impact two-way player i think that the real two-way two-way player is going to be someone like ghosts who figure out a way because he was uh an athletic outfielder great arm pinch runner if he can be a guy i mean i think he's probably gonna be more in the mold assuming it works out with the astros who took him in the rule five draft so they're directly planning on having him on their 25-man roster um will be more as pitcher first but still be able to take on you know, impact 
roles uh, as, a, as a reserve off the bench. Yeah, and I think you saw that with the 10-day the DL last year. The Dodgers basically had a 16-man pitching staff just cycling guys in and out as they needed. Oh, you need a 10-day break? This is a perfect time to do it. And it certainly helps for teams, and this is sort of a, uh, uh, a, a subtle thing that, that could go unnoticed, but it helps for teams whose AAA team is close to where they play. If your AAA team is close to where you play, you're at a real advantage for being able to cycle guys in and out because you know it's like, oh, a one-hour flight away or a drive. And some, yeah. and for some teams, it's like a, you know, the Yankees AAA team is in Scranton. It's like a, it's a drive. Yeah, the, the Red Sox are in uh, ba- basically Providence. Yeah. You know, C- Seattle's got Tacoma. This is why it was such a disadvantage for the Mets to be in Vegas for a couple of years because that's a cross-country flight right It's been here. like, you know, eight years now. They're going to be, this is their last year. They're going to be in, I think, Syracuse starting 2019, which will be huge game changer. It really will. It's like it's one of those minor things that could really make a big difference. Uh, that's our show for today. That's the MLB.com StatCast podcast. Thanks very much for listening. We'll catch you next week.